Welcome to Reconvene 2022 Emerging Talent Talks, brought to you by our partner, Gran Centenario Cristalino Tequila. I'm Moses Kagan, and the following conversation is with Richard Fertig of Stomp Capital. This next sort of portion of the event is uh, new for us. Uh, we didn't do it last year, and um, but we're, we're really excited about it. It's uh, the Emerging Talent Talks. And um, the first thing I want to say is that they are uh, presented by Grand Centenario Cristalino Tequila. Would, and I'll be really honest that when we uh, made the agreement for the tequila brand to sponsor these emerging talent talks, I had never tasted their tequila. <laughs> and so, it, and which dawned on me like probably a month ago uh, uh, that I should be nervous. Um, uh, and then fortunately they sent us uh, a few bottles and it turns out to be delicious. So, so I'm very happy for all of you to, uh, to get to sample some tomorrow at the, uh, at the farewell lunch. Um, so, so why are we doing these emerging talent talks? Um, uh, well, in large part because when I was getting started, uh, I would have killed to, to, to do these talks. Um, it's, it's hard, as, as many of you know, um, when you're trying to get the, the, the wheel turning and you're pushing so hard and you're pushing against a lot of uh, inertia, it's hard to kind of get the momentum and getting in front of some other potential partners and investors and things like that. Um, so we want we to we start a tradition here at uh, Reconvene of, of helping some, some, some of these, uh, these, these newer um, sponsors get a little bit of exposure uh, to, to, to some of you um, more experienced types. Um, so with that, uh, uh, let's get started. I'm excited to um, welcome to the stage a guy who you, uh, who probably you all know from Twitter because he has what appears to be an amazing life. Uh, he is, he's been an investor for a long time, um, but his uh, current venture is what I would call emerging. So uh, please welcome Richard Fertig of Stomp Capital. You know what? This is a social media Moses, thing. Thank you. <laughs> I knew you were going to do it. Come on. <laughs> I knew we you got were it. Do it. Well, not, not ready, though. Here we go. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, everybody. Should have done my hair. Um, <laughs> so, um, so these talks are not as long as the other ones, so we're going to jump right into it. And, uh, and the, the structure here is we're going to talk a little bit about Richard and sort of like his background, and then we want to focus on on the business that he's that he's in the process of building, um, and then right at the end we're going to talk about uh, uh, what what if anything you guys need uh, as you sort of continue with with your journey. So uh, let's get started right away because I know th this is a particularly glamorous one relative to some of the other things that some of us are doing. Um, so so let's let's talk, like how did you get involved in this high end uh, short term rental business? Yeah, well, first, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank you and Simran for everything you're doing. So please, everybody, a round of applause. Thanks, Simran. And that's <laughs> also you. the hospitality component. Uh, the reality of it is I got a, a signing bonus when I joined the Blackstone Group in 1998. I was recruited, and I bought a vacation rental house in the Hamptons. My ex-wife and I couldn't afford it at the time, but what we figured was, you know, if we buy this place, it should cash flow or at least break even. So I've been a vacation, high-end vacation renter, a rental owner for an extended period of time. And um, over the years, 
our personal lifestyle portfolio grew. So like what worked in the Hamptons turned out to work in the mountains and it turned out to be in the lakes. Uh, and after 2008, when I actually got let go, uh, I decided to start to become an entrepreneur, uh, continue to invest in high-end rentals and started a YouTube channel teaching other people because like the wealth was so good and the cash flow was so strong, the quality of life was so wonderful that it, Whereas before in the hedge fund world, I couldn't like share anything, right? I would have been fired. I would never be sitting up on stage here. I did the exact opposite and I went on YouTube and shared the, all the wealth. We heard Nick earlier about the, you know, the benefits of all that. Uh, and it's been remarkable and I've had the great honor of helping hundreds, thousands, maybe more, quit W2 jobs that were meaningless and they really hated uh, and pursue something of passion and spend more time with friends and family. So um, as I was teaching everybody about the benefits of it, it sort of struck me that as a professional investor, the best opportunity I've ever seen in my entire investment career was passing me by. And so I decided to do something about it and launched a predecessor fund, which is now part of, uh, will be part of Stomp Capital. And we launched Stomp Capital and shout out to my team over here, or a portion of my team, thanks for coming. Uh, so that's a little bit how we got started. That's great. And I, what I, so I want to emphasize one thing that you just said, which is the the virtue of building that audience. I mean, that is a that's a, uh, I, and I'm as everyone here knows, like an enormous advocate of content creation as a way to kind of. Uh, start the, the, the flywheel turning um, with inbound leads and things like that. It's been unbelievably beneficial. In fact, the teammates that I have here reached out to me as a result. Um, I think Nick said that three quarters of his team came as a result of his social media presence. Uh, I would say it's more than that for us. And what, what drives that more than anything is the passion, right? They're self-selecting, they're raising their hands saying, I love what it is that you're doing. I wanna be a part of it. Um, and I would never be able to hire them otherwise. There's no recruiter, no headhunter. Uh, that would get somebody who are as talented and as passionate about what it is that we're doing. And what we're doing isn't easy. So to get really talented people that you couldn't hire anywhere else that are passionate about the vision and the opportunity set is makes all the difference. So let's talk about actually what you're doing. Because okay. I, you know, we, uh, many of us who are on Twitter and, and in other places are aware that this short-term rental business has exploded. I mean, obviously it was going on pre-pandemic completely exploded with the, the, the driving vacations that everyone was taking in 2020, 2021. But you have a model that, um, while I guess we could group it in short-term rentals, is really kind of different and special, in my opinion. Talk more about that. Well, that's very kind. Um, I think the way to describe it easiest, so we all get on the same page, is like Airbnb is about 11 years old. Verbo existed before that, but the UX that Airbnb introduced allowed people to like start doing this and more often. Uh, and so when it first launched 10, 11 years ago, it was STR 1.0. So you could list this chair on Airbnb, you'd make a fortune because there was that much demand and there wasn't any supply. Right now we're in what I call STR 2.0, which means that there's professional people that are becoming hosts, they're leaving jobs, they're taking it seriously, they're monetizing it. Um, and the quality and the consistency is increasing. That's the biggest gripe that people have about, oh, I never travel on Airbnb is inconsistency. So that's being addressed right now in the STR 2.0 model. Where we're spending a lot of our time is in the STR 3.0 model, which is really more experience-based and also community-based. So we try and get like-minded people to come to our properties for a very specific reason, create raving fans that tell all their friends about it. Uh, we delight them and the STR 4.0 model that we're toying with right now and it's with our lawyers is to get membership. So what we're doing um, in particular, raise your hand if you know the Patagonia company, right? 
the audience is half asleep. You've got to wake them up. Come on, raise your hand if you know the Patagonia company. Yeah, we all know okay, that. great. So Patagonia, imagine if they had like a lodge at every, at like the best ski place, the best kayaking place, the best mountain climbing, the best everything. Everybody would go there that wanted outdoor activities. And that's basically what we're doing with our Edge Camp Sporting Club brand. We're trying to get enthusiasts that are passionate about what it is that they do, that they can't get access anywhere else because it doesn't support a Four Seasons. Uh, and at the end of the day, the reason that we do that in addition to creating a brand and the loyal following is because we have pricing power. Yeah, I was gonna ask about that because I mean, I, it, it strikes me that you, you, by creating these unique experiences, what you're doing is really separating yourself from a pricing perspective. What are the, what, are, what are the economics look like on one of these things? Is it, I mean, I think what brought me around to, it took, embarrassingly, it took me a little while to figure out what you were doing. And then it occurred to me at a certain point that you're basically running like a small, extraordinarily high-end hotel, maybe with only one room, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Um, so the flagship product that we built in the, in the, Outer Banks of North Carolina is uh, 14 bedrooms, 12,000 square feet. It's got a pool, it's got access to the sound. Uh, we do corporate retreats there, we do uh, kiteboarding. Uh, you know, people come there for the activities. Last year we did about 600,000 or so in revenue, uh, starting you know, in the kind of the pandemic with 70% margins. Uh, and then on top of that, some of the a la carte amenities that we add on were a couple hundred thousand dollars apart. So that was a short season. We had about 35% occupancy. So one of the things that people dislike about short-term rentals is what's known as uh, vacancy risk. And you know, coming from a financial background, I know for a fact that you can take just about anything, chop it up, tranche it up, CMBS it, whatever. And um, by taking that other side of the trade, Generally speaking, if you do it properly, it's more profitable. So uh, what we're seeing in the short-term rental space right now, if done properly, is about two and a half to three X what you would get for signing a 12-month lease. So for taking vacancy risk, instead of getting $1,000 for a one-bedroom, hosts around the world are getting closer to 2,500 or 3,000. And then depending on how good they are, you know, their margins vary. But it's quite profitable because what we've done is we strip out the labor cost, which is the highest thing in hospitality. Relative to a normal hotel. Relative to a normal hotel. And then the other thing, which again causes a lot of gripes, um, is the cleaning fees. The cleaning fees are a pass-through. Uh, and then from an a la carte perspective, people dial up or dial down the amount of cleaning they want. Maybe they just want it once. Maybe they want it every day. Maybe they want it every other day. So we just tailor their vacation or their retreat to what they want, and they pay for what they want, and they don't pay for what they don't. That makes sense to me. Now, one of the issues that I, or, or in thinking through the model, one of the issues that occurred to me is, you know, uh, if you take on one set, one end of the spectrum, you've got your sort of like bog standard, as the English say, uh, generic short-term rental, you know, uh, yeah. a cabin in the hills somewhere with some, you know, which is perfectly nice. But um, uh, the nice thing about that is that if, for whatever reason, you want to get out of the short-term rentals business, presumably there's either a long-term rental or you sell it as a mm -hmm. regular vacation house to someone. What you have done is is what I would call the other end of the spectrum, where you're where you're building highly customized for, uh, buildings that are designed for for a purpose built. Yeah. Um, how do you think about that? The 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 risk reward there. So. The first thing I would say is we're doing this in areas that have historically very strong demand, right? So like the, we're the single largest landowner on Hatteras Island right now. Uh, we own over 50 acres for future development, but those 50 acres are on a home, on an island where there's 3,000 single family homes, the vast majority of which have rented for decades. So 
all we've done is create a better mousetrap. And the bet that I made was, I went down there, by the way, having nothing to do with short-term rentals or Airbnb or anything. I went down there to learn how to kiteboard. And in the midst of learning how to kiteboard, I've recognized the scarcity of high-quality lodging options. And so consequently, I started small. And next thing you know, I did this assemblage. And now we're the largest landowner on Hatteras Island. But what we've created is a better mousetrap. And so if we wanted to exit, there's plenty of people who would buy it. In fact, we get unsolicited bids on our properties, on our land, and so on. So that risk of exit, I don't think, really exists. And that tends to be the case in all of our properties. I mean, we're in West Palm Beach, Florida, Palm Springs, California, Nosara, Costa Rica, Outer Banks. We're looking for a ski area, like in, I don't know, Jackson or Sun Valley. So we're not out there just saying, like, oh, we're going to build a really high-end, purpose-built home in the middle of nowhere, and we're going to bring them there. Right. Now, let me ask you in terms of the structure of the business itself, because this is, I, you know me, I'm like, a, I'm a nerd about this stuff. Um, uh, opco, propco structure, in other words, are you splitting the operations from the, the properties themselves, or is it, or is it more, well, you, you tell yeah. me. So um, the fund owns all of the assets, all of the underlying land, all of the different properties. We pay uh, below cost property management to something that we do internally. Uh, just to put that in perspective, we charge 10% property management, and most people in the short-term rental space are 20 or even 30, so we're doing it not at our cost, actually subsidized. But I think we're the best in class at doing what it is that we're doing. Uh, some of the things that we do on top of that, like the amenities that we talked about, we charge a 12%. That'll likely increase over time, and that feeds into the fund as well. Okay, so you're building, so at, so the fund is uh, uh, building this portfolio of properties. Yes. And you're separately building a management company, which uh, does not provide management services to others or does? Does not. Just it's entirely focused on the Correct. fund's properties. Yeah. And I, what is the, um, so, so as many of us know, I know, and I've got scars to prove it, it's hard to raise a fund. Like it's, you know, it's a lot easier to do <laughs> deal by deal. Like you could show people, look, this is what we're going to do. And uh, funds are really painful because you're kind of asking people to trust you that you're going to find something good to do. Um, why the why the decision to go with the fund model? That's a great question. I would say the following. Um, first off, we have total assets under management of about $50 million. Approximately a third of that is me personally. So um, not only do we invest side by side and have a commitment to it, we actually like our cooking quite a bit. This is what we do. Um, and I would have it no other way. As a professional portfolio manager, I ran a $4.5 billion fund before. Um, the individual assets play a role for the portfolio overall. So the easiest way to think about this is the reason people like multifamily is the consistency. If you do your credit check properly, Moses is going to pay his rent on time every single month. I can count on it. I pay my he mortgage. Right? He better. <laughs> um, so what we can do at the portfolio level that you can't do at an individual asset level is, theoretically, we could get an asset that fires on all cylinders in January, another one in February, another one in March. And so by creating a fund portfolio, what we can do is dampen the volatility, increase the returns. Uh, mathematically, we're talking about sharp ratio here. Um, and since we very much are building this to sell, we're very much driving and creating this asset class. We're confident that at some point in the future, I don't know if it's in five years or 10 years or 50 years, but at some point in the future, somebody's going to tap us on the shoulder, much like your prior speaker here, and we're going to exit to somebody who says, we didn't want to build it, we didn't know how to build it, but we love what you've done here. And it could be my prior employer at Blackstone, it could be Patagonia, it could be Red Bull, it could be a kiting company, who knows who it is, but we're building this to sell. 
And I mean, there's the news flow is that the the hotel brands are sort of starting to yeah. think about that. So imagine that that is that, that's of course another class of potential uh, acquirers down the road. Yeah, and I get asked that all the time. Like, well, why aren't the hospitality companies doing this? And they're all trying to, they're, they're losing market share every single day, for better or for worse. That's just the reality. And I like to say, no disrespect to some of my friends who are in the audience, like. We build this for my kids, and everyone on my team is much younger than I am. Um, we build for them. That gives us the runway and the opportunity set. And my kids, like, they have no interest in Marriott and loyalty points. They're not doing any of that. So um, they're losing market share every single day, and yet they can't do it themselves because of the culture. Their culture is, let's throw some labor at it. Let's, you know, that's the way you solve problems. The way that we solve problems is proactive, not reactive, right? So we designed these custom-built homes from the interiors. You saw maybe my tweet about like all the illumination at the proper hotel. You know, like we're at solving all of these things in advance because we want it to be sort of self-hosting as opposed to require us and increased labor costs. Which feeds into the purpose-built exactly. piece of it. Yeah, That's that, critically that, important. I don't personally believe, although there's a lot of people who are doing really well and have great returns and so on, that the best use of this asset class is at the intersection of hotels and self-hosting. Do you take the best of each and eliminate the worst of each? And I just don't see how a home that's been around for 20 or 30 years as a primary residence for somebody really lends itself to this. So what we're doing is custom building it. And you know, some of my team members say our oceanfront house in the Outer Banks, for instance, it's purpose built, but like it's their dream home. If they could live there year round, that's what they would do because it's like, the only difference is really, we know who's coming, what it is that they're doing. We've created separate breakout areas. So in that like home, for instance, we have three or four mini living rooms. And then it's an open floor plan. And so if you have an offsite, sales could be on one floor, marketing could be on the other. If a family's visiting, the parents are having wine and dinner upstairs, the kids are playing Xbox downstairs and you don't hear the noise. So when we say purpose built, like it's not out there. It's nothing that we can't imagine and that you wouldn't want to live in. I think many people would actually like to live in it. I can't stand when my kids play Xbox. <laughs> right, there you go. <laughs> um, so, so maybe now let's turn to the final piece of this, which is like, um, what are you looking for? In other words, what, what, as you continue down this, this journey, and you've got, you've got this hotel that you've bought, the Hamptons, that looks like it's going to be amazing. Um, you've got this land bank now. Um, what is it that you need to sort of propel the, the, the business forward? Well, it's very... Nice of you to ask. Um, and I've learned a long time ago that if you don't ask, you don't get. So um, unlike many people in the real estate space, and maybe even in the world where uh, there's just not a lot of opportunities or prices aren't right, um, as a professional investor, I follow fund flows. And so what ends up happening is, you know, multifamily 10 years ago, there wasn't a ton of capital chasing it. The reason that the cap rates are so low is because there's been an influx, a massive flood of capital into it. It makes the asset class less attractive. We're at the very early nascent stages of this asset class, which means that we're seeing tremendous opportunities to deploy capital. And what we're missing is not ideas, is not creativity, is not execution. What we're missing is capital. And so we're here right now, we're raising $25 million at the fund level, we're not announcing any assets that we've you know, identified, although my team is working diligently to identify incredible assets. We have some things that are extremely strategic and extremely exciting, and I think once everybody learns of them, we'll be like, wow, that's mind-boggling. Um, so we need capital. Uh, we've got great ideas and great resources. The talent that we've assembled from architects to law firms to branding agencies, I mean, literally, the people that are drawn to the vision and the opportunity set are remarkable. We just need a little bit of fuel in the portfolio, which is, which is capital. 
Fantastic. I think we should leave it there. Fabulous. I, uh, I want to thank you. And on, on behalf of uh, our sponsor, uh, I want to give you this bottle of tequila. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you all. I appreciate it.